0: for you take the Word of God and turn to Ephesians chapter number 5 this morning. Ephesians chapter number 5. Again, I know some of you are visiting with us. We uh, again thank God for that. Um, We've taken a break from our uh, general study verse by verse in the book of Mark. um, For the purpose of Preaching the doctrine of the church. So that's what I want to commend to you this morning. I began that last week, and for um, the desire to really just hone in on what the church is and who the church is, um, I think that that's going to be imperative um, in the coming days that we know who we are, what we are, and thus we'll know, we know our responsibility um, to the individual, um, to the church member, um, to the family and ultimately to the authorities that God has ordained to be over us. Um, what is our role? What is our responsibility um, in this world in all avenues of life? Um, I think that many of the images that God gives us is somewhat parabolic and illustrative um, of those things, You know, in, in, in wondering and meditating and praying on how to present to you the doctrine of the church. I've not preached or taught through it in the past. I haven't studied it, but... Not systematically laid it out in my own thinking or um, in teaching form. Try to try to discern how best to do that. Um, thought about te- teaching through the um, through the uh, terms of identification of who we are, and then going on to activity. But in studying, um, there's an inseparable truth and reality to both of those. So over the next few weeks we will be preaching, uh, particularly those illustrative and parabolic um, terms of reality that God has given for the church, particularly today the bride. And I believe that when we understand what a bride is, who a bride is, who the bride is, and who we are in Christ as his bride, um, it will, without a doubt, um, provoke us to action, provoke us to thought, provoke us to gratitude. And provoke us to so many other things so in knowing who we are in relationship to Christ particularly today in relationship to one another as the bride um, it will come with it some imperatives on what we are to do which I know is really what people desire to know right like you want to know what you need to do in this day in this hour I'm convinced that greater than that we need to know who we are because in knowing who we are um, inevitably will spring forth what we are to do so um let us focus on that today the nature of the character and the work of the bride if you will we'll stand for the reading of god's word out of reverence for it um, we'll take our reading this morning out of um, ephesians chapter 5 and i want to read the entirety of uh, 22 through 23 although we'll focus in on particularly verses 25 through 27 and then verse 29 uh, but you read these words as instruction to the church at ephesus and to us um, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves him, his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. the two shall become one flesh this is a great mystery that I speak concerning Christ and the church nevertheless let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband let's pray once more Father we love you God we're already reminded in song and in prayer and in teaching in the Sunday school hour um just the limitless nature, Father, of who you are. You continue um, thousands of years later, um, millennia, to confuse and confound and boggle the minds of um, not only the world, but also your children. <laughs> um, you surprise us so often and so much, Lord. And, um, and We just lean on you. We lean on your truth this morning, Father. Um, we come to you with our eyes and our ears fixed upon your gaze. Father, and just ask that um, you would exalt your son this morning. Um, through the preaching of the word, Father, that you would aid me in being faithful to the text, Lord, and faithful to the image, faithful to your church, Father. I sit before a uh, beautiful bride. I sit before the one in whom your son gave his only life for. Father, the one in whom today you, you bless and you keep Father, the one in whom you continue to cherish and nourish. Father, the one in whom um, your son will wed upon that great and glorious day. Um, So, Father, when I I stand here, I I understand the soberness of it and the great joy. Um, What is more joyful than a bride? What is more beautiful than a bride? Um, So, Father, um, let me glory in her beauty this morning. Father, and just be faithful. Um, to prepare her for that great day. Father, we know that there's a thousand reasons and things that we could think of in this moment, uh, but would you just give us a few moments, Father, this next hour, um, just to stay our minds and fix our gaze, not only upon the, the, the bride, Father, but the bridegroom. I um, In all of his glory and all of his majesty, as he, sit, as he sits right now um, at the right hand of God the Father, has all authority in heaven and on earth, Father, it enables us to do exactly what we're about to do. And it has some eternal um, impact. God, um, be with the mothers and fathers who have their little ones in the um, in the congregation today, Father. Um, I know how difficult it is sometimes to listen. And, and uh, sometimes, Father, it's just their sacrifice to train them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. I pray you'd bless them this morning, Father. I pray that you would ease the anxiety in their hearts and souls. Um, the Father... Um, I'm thankful, Father, for those that um, desire to do that and are dedicated, Father. So I pray that you bless them this morning, Father, with the truth of your word as they labor on the pew, Father, with their little ones. God, just give us a spirit of humility and a spirit of joy and a spirit of grace as we approach your text now. For Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Bless you. The nature of the church and its identity as found in Ephesians 5 being a bride Um, I love homeschool families I was not Um, I was a traditional public school attendee Um, God used it in my life he did when you come from that institution of a public school um, to a homeschool atmosphere you learn a lot you learn a few things some things that you take for granted, things we assume that our children know that they don't know, like uh, I was talking to several people in the last few weeks. Um, There was a time in Sunday school where it just dawned on me that uh, my children are pretty rude. (laughs) They don't raise their hands, you know? And then I thought, man, I just assumed that they would know to raise their hands to ask a question. And then I I reflected upon myself and I thought, that's my job. Like, I'm supposed to, to do that. So soon after we corrected and and did um dawned on me yeah and I stopped asking some time ago not only uh, not, not my kids but your kids <laughs> uh what grade they're in um half of the time they have no idea and neither do their parents and that's okay you know like that's that's the nature of it now you don't have to um so it just makes me have to think of creative questions to get them to talk but I think I learned that from growing up in a public school. You know, the number one thing that uh, people would ask us, that we would be asked as children by a stranger, and the number one thing I began to ask children as a stranger, just to raise small talk and to get them talking, was, uh, you know, what, what grade are you in? Um, and as you age, it generally followed um, that the second most common question that I got as I aged, um, growing up in that atmosphere, and even among my family. Um, Was not quite as easy. After a while, I appreciated that question because I knew the answer to that question. Um, But uh, the the, the following question was not quite as easy. Um, It goes like this What are you going to be when you grow up? You know? And it was always followed on my part by an emphatic, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, And I thought, who knows what they're going to be when you're 12? Who knows what you're going to be when you're 15 or 17? And eventually I just tried to figure out a good answer that I could tell people, you know, because of the anxiety. I had a lot of social anxiety anyway. Um, so I just think of something good, something honorable, something respectable. And given my personality, I eventually began to believe even some of those things. and thought I should be those things, whatever they were. But honestly, it was a very haunting question. What do you want to be? Because it indicated that I, I should be something, or at least I should want to be something, right? Something that I, I was not. Or or have you been in a case where you wanted to be something and somebody else was like, nah, I don't think you should be that. You know, I, I've got that before. I remember a time in college I was, I was initially pre-med and I was going to go on to be a doctor for a number of reasons, uh, many of which were not spiritual. And uh, my wife was in school as well. And we went to a... Um, Something that she had to do, it was like a community thing here in Kingsport, and she had to go to fulfill certain hours, I don't even remember what it was, but she was gone and I sat beside a guy who just brought up small talk, and of course asked me, what school are you in, how old are you, and what are you going to be? Um, And I told him pre-med, pre-med. And he looked at me, and um, in curiosity and just kind of uh, joy, he looked at me, he's like, yeah, I think you'd be good at that, guy didn't know me from Adam. Um, he said, you should be a podiatrist. You look like a podiatrist. I didn't know what a podiatrist was at that time. I went home and and I looked it up and it turns out it was a foot doctor. And I thought to myself, what general characteristics did I exude um, to be labeled a guy who should diagnose plantar fasciitis and athlete's foot for the rest of his life? I thought, is there something in me, you know, um, that kind of... Relayed that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, if any of you want to aspire to that, that's what God wants you to be. Do it to His glory. Amen. And those people appreciate that. But um, it was somewhat haunting to me, and as I desired to be something else. And oftentimes, many people would come and say, "No, you shouldn't be that." And it would make me question everything that I, I was and and wanted to be. It's a um, haunting question when everyone knows what you should be and you don't. It clearly implies that you don't know who you are or at least everything that you're trying to be. Um, They don't know who you are. Isn't that, that's another thing, right? Like that's another haunting place to be in. Um, That you're trying to be something uh, like a costume party or a number of other things and you show up and everybody that comes to you has to ask you the question, who are you? What are you supposed to be? I mean, you've tried hard and you've labored long and you've been this and you and you, you did it in such a way that you wanted everybody to know who you were, but um, it's clear that nobody does. What are you going to become? What are you supposed to be? And are you that which you're even trying to be? Lies the dilemma in the great questions of the 21st century Church of America? I'm convinced that many of them, and maybe some of you, maybe us, you know, that's a haunting question. Who are we? You know? And what do we want to be? And are we becoming anything? They don't know who they are and they don't know what they're becoming or what they will ultimately be. Many churches um, evidence this by the fact that they are extremely activity-oriented, not goal-oriented. They know what they like to do, but not really who they are. They think of church in relationship to the next thing, the next activity, and if things aren't going on, they're bored, they'll find a church that is doing um, other things. They think about church in reference to either staying busy or being bored. Um, People that want this type of church are looking for a church that's always doing something. It doesn't really matter what they're doing, but it's just that they're doing something. And not that busyness is inherently wrong. You know, the church should be busy. We should be busy. But business is not always good. Think about it in reference to the family. You know, busyness is not always good. You know, Um, many people think about the family the same way they think about the church and Um, They have to keep up with the Joneses and they raise a standard by which they measure themselves and therefore they must look like and do every single thing else that a family is doing. Otherwise, they're not doing justice to themselves nor their children. So what do they inevitably do? They enamor themselves with activity and distractions. And uh, don't ask the hard questions, who am I, what am I, and what am I becoming, and why am I even doing the things that I'm doing, you know? So we put little Johnny in soccer and and guitar lessons multiple times of the week after eight hours of school, all while little Susie is playing at her play dates and her crafts, and mom and dad are just fraught with uh, exhaustion at the end of the day, and we're spent, and we look back and we feel good about ourselves because we've done something, but really, what have we done, you know? Has it contributed at all to what the family is or what the family is supposed to be? You know, people look at me like I'm weird. You know, especially at work and things like that. I, uh, we get to talking small talk if they don't already know me, and uh, they find out that I have uh, you know, more children than most people can count, and uh, and they uh, and then then they look at me cross-eyed, and then then the inevitably the following question comes, and and then they look at me cross-eyed and upside down um, because they ask me, "Are you are you done yet?" and Um, And I inevitably tell them, you know, if the Lord wills, I I don't know. You know, we may continue on. Um, We may carry on. Um, And people think that is so strange. It's so weird. And um, let me just say that whenever I I talk about this, I'm not saying there's anything inherently virtuous about having a bunch of children. You know, I I don't want to lay that burden um, or that on anybody else. Um, Although we have decided that it is right for our family. In the beginning, it probably wasn't the right reasons either, you know. Um, to be honest with you, I've come to the conclusion that uh, I generally ask this, this, the follow-up with this question, why have children anyway? Have you ever thought about that question? I never really thought about that question until recently. You know, I think that we just have children and we have one or two and we do this and that because most uh, people are unhappy and they think that that's the next key or it's the cultural thing to do. Um, and uh, we carry on, you know. Um, and we do it, and after one or two, they become uh, more of a frustration than they are a, a, um, a help and a hindrance. And we just think that more just uh, puts us in bondage and slavery, you know. And we see them as keeping us from the actual business that we want to do, not realizing that much of what God has desired for the family, that they are the business, you know. And much of our activities are governed around that very thing. But, but um, you know, I-, I ask them the question, because if if... You know, if, if six is wrong, then two is wrong. Like, You know, if seven's wrong, then one's wrong. Like, why in the Because if the purpose is is so that you can free yourself um, to do anything and everything that you want to do and live your life apart from them so when they turn 18, you can finally live life now, um, then, then why even have one? You know, and bind yourself up for 18 years or 20 years or even for the rest of your life, I would argue, as you're bound to them in some form or fashion. You know, and at some point, and it was probably number four or five, like I had to come to grips with the question as well, like um, what, what what is the family all about? Like why even have more children? Why even have one? You know, what does God determine? Who is the family? What are they to do? You know, and um, God has just impressed upon us that they're image bearers of God. And that's one of the ways that God changes the world to raise and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And if God gives us health and spiritual condition and emotional and physical health and we're able to do that, then to God be the glory if we can carry on. Because that's what a family is. God ordained it in the beginning to be that unit of society um, that promotes certain things that are honoring and glorifying to God. Actually, in the beginning, the family um, was ordained by God. And we see that in Ephesians chapter number 5 as he gives application um, to husbands and wives. He says that really this thing is formed and fashioned, you know, because... God foreordained in the beginning that the family would actually preach the Gospel through the relationship that it has, not only as a husband and wife, but also with children. That it is a picture. That it is illustrative. It wasn't as if Adam and Eve were in the garden and everything fell and then God's like, let's move to plan B and then plan C. And why don't we fashion the Gospel like marriage so that people will know exactly what it's like. Actually, the Gospel um, is the purpose That the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. There God, God preemptively designed marriage as it was to preach the Gospel under the Old Covenant as well as in the New. That it would exemplify the very nature and character of Christ. And that in the family, that Gospel would be preached um, verbally, vocally, and visually to the children, and by God's grace, um, would would be saved by the by the by, by the gospel um, through the ministry and the discipline, the nurture, the admonition of the Lord to these children. As image bearers enter into the world and through the home, would God would raise up churchmen and countrymen um, that would know how to operate um, as in, in the in the church and in the country the way that God had ordained them to. And like we're thinking about this and praying about it as a family, and right? like. Why not have more? I'm not saying that you need to. I'm just saying that as a, a person um, who, who wrestled with these issues of who are we, it often determines and should determine what we do. It should determine our activities. You know, that we shouldn't just do activity because activity um, is good. There's nothing inherently good about busyness. Actually, oftentimes throughout the Scriptures, um, the Lord Himself in the Old Testament and the New, but how many times in the Old Testament does He come to the nation of Israel and He says, I hate your sacrifices. You know? Like, I hate the fact that you bring burnt offerings. I hate your activity. It abhors me. It's idolatrous, you know? Why? Because the Old Testament is laden, or is laid um, deep with imagery of God's relationship to His people. Uh, much of which you find is um, a bride, right? A husband to a bride. And what they had done often throughout the Old Testament is committed idolatry, which is nothing more than spiritual adultery, as they give themselves over to other things and other loves and they, um, and they abandon everything that God was, yet they bring Him a, a, a penance. They bring Him this or that to make themselves um, feel somewhat better. I mean, that's exactly what we see. That's exactly what we see. That activity should be governed and grow out of who and what we are. This is true of the church as well. Okay? That, that, that as we gather together as a church, every church won't be different, just like every family won't be different. Again, I'm not arguing that, 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 that uh, this morning that there's any inherent virtue in, in doing the things that we do, but, we're, but we've decided as a family we need to do the things that God wants us to do because of what we are and who we are. So the way that we educate our children, the way that we engage our children, the things that they do and the things that they don't do, I'm literally asking questions about every single thing, you know. Um, Some of them take guitar lessons, some of them take violin lessons, and I'm like, if they can't do that to the glory of God, or we don't have any purpose for this as a family to to propagate the gospel or to, 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 to do what the family is supposed to do, then let's not do it, you know. Um, let's remove the distractions and let's think about who we are in relationship to ourselves in relationship to family in relationship to church and in relationship to the community um, and let's examine those things and ask if they actually contribute to the thing that God has given us to do um, within the family we must do the same with the church you know last week whenever I begin to bring everything in question it wasn't necessarily to, to 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 make a point that everything that we're doing is meaningless but asking the question you know Like, is this everything that we're doing, what we're supposed to be doing? If it is, let's love it, you know? Let's love it and let's run with it. But if it's not, you know, um, let's change some things around. And then even the things that we're doing, there's nothing inherently wrong with them. But are we doing the things that we're doing um, to promote that which we were created for? Um, Which is exactly what we will um, find out today. I believe it will bring clarity over the next few weeks in what we should be doing. For example, the symbol of marriage in our culture is what? It's a, it's a ring, right? It symbolizes union between two people. Everybody knows what a bride is. Everybody knows what a husband is. Everybody knows what a marriage is, at least in our culture. They may have a skewed idea. It may be totally distorted. We understand that. We're not arguing that. But some, some principle of marriage and, and love and husband and wife Um, is no doubt uh, known among all of our culture here in America. And the symbol of that, um, again, whether you're Christian or not, um, is predominantly the ring. And When you see a woman with a wedding ring on, what does it do? It clarifies what and who that person is. It says to the world, I'm a bride. So men, there's no need to approach her and ask her out on Friday night. You know to some degree what is and what is not appropriate. You know what she can and cannot do. And the same happens with a husband. You understand, uh, at the same time, within the context of that marriage, that ring, um, it indicates to you and to them to some extent the bond, the covenant that's made. And she understands her responsibility to him. And he understands his responsibility to her. And we all know what that means in in a similar way. And that's true in the body of Christ. Being a bride means something. And when we understand what that means, it will clarify our planning. It will clarify our activity. It will clarify what we are in responsibility in relationship to the world and ultimately uh, in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not a new concept as it was mentioned in, um, earlier. This is actually an old concept that's being built up throughout the Old Testament and into the new. Um, when God forms a relationship with His people, oftentimes He does it and He uses uh, marriage as an illustration of that. For example, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 40, uh, 54, verse number 5 says, your, your Maker is your husband. The Lord uh, of hosts is His name. And He's talking to the nation of Israel. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He's called the God of the whole earth. When verse number 4 pre- precedes that, and it says this, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. And then in verse number five, you see that that word for or because or therefore. Why won't we remember the reproach? Why will we forget the shame? Why won't we be disgraced anymore? Because your maker is your husband. He covenants himself with you. He lays certain Uh, responsibilities he takes upon himself a role and a responsibility with the with the the old covenant people of God um, in which he gives himself to them in that fashion and they are to be a chaste bride for him we also know that that wasn't always the case under the old covenant if you were to read Ezekiel 16 Ezekiel 23 Hosea Um, You would read of passages of Scripture where God condemns them for the fact that they did not keep covenant with Him. Ezekiel 16.8 is a phenomenal picture. I'm not going to read it all to you, but I I would uh, commend that to you for later reading. Um, And it speaks of the the birth of the nation of Israel and how He brought them out and gave them birth and cleaned them off. Um, Ezekiel 16.8 says this, When I passed by you and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into covenant with you and you became mine. Man, that, that sounds like um, some, some, some wonderful wedding vows, doesn't it? Says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed you of your blood. And I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and you succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations. Because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I bestowed upon you, says the Lord God. Man, what a beginning. You know, in Deuteronomy it says, you know, why does God choose the nation of Israel out of all the other nations? He says, I just loved you because I loved you because you were the least. You know? There's no reason. There's nothing in you. There was nothing um, to provoke me towards you. Simply, I loved you for the reason that I loved you, and I chose you for a particular purpose. Like, and these are all the things that I did. Isaiah five. I chose a vine. The choicest of vines, and I did everything in the vineyard. I was the vine dresser. And I did everything that I could um, in it. What, what more? He eventually culminates in this question: What more could I have done in the vineyard than I have not done? You know, like, man, what else could you expect? God to do um, to someone so undeserving. But here comes the condemnation in verse 15. But You trusted in your own beauty. Played the harlot because of your fame. And poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You were a harlot. You were an adulterer. All of the grace that was extended and everybody that passes by, you give them the love that was owed to me. If you follow the passage, you'll see that the harlotry manifested itself in breaking the commandments of God. It manifested itself in the commission of idolatry or spiritual adultery. Even to the point, that at some point, they're sacrificing their children in the fire. You have a striking illustration of the waywardness of adultery of God's people that even provoked God's anger. He covenanted with His people and promised them to Himself, but they would not. They would not. And you can understand why, I hope. It's inconceivable that God would tolerate such foolishness, such wandering, such rebellion. I mean, think about your own life. Think about your own marriage. Think about your own husband. Think about your own wife. What husband would allow his wife to walk out the door with love for her and his heart unpursued? None, I hope. That is what God is picturing for us here in his son, that he's a faithful to his covenants and the fact that he is love is the reason that his indignation burns in his in in his inner parts in his substance and in his nature because of the faithlessness and the unfaithfulness of the people of god as they abandon him when he's committed himself to, to them in some in in the former fashion under the old covenant and that's part of his faithfulness, to pursue her, to run after her, to even um, in, God's, um, in God's dealings, to even um, uh, discipline them and pour out judgment upon them because that was part of the covenant that he made with the Old Covenant nation. And then not only is it in the Old Testament, but it's developed in the New Testament. We could go to a hundred other places in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the imagery is carried on. Mark chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? speaking of Christ as the bridegroom. Um, as long as the bridegroom is with them, they can't fast, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. John three twenty eight. 28. Um, John refers to himself as a friend of the bridegroom. And John is delineating of the fact that he's not the Christ. He's not the anointed one. He's not the one to come. They were often confused, but he's been sent before him. He's a friend. He's a a forerunner. He's the one to pave the way. He's the guy rolling out the red carpet for the bridegroom um, in this wedding. Uh, He's the one that is there to proclaim the name of Christ who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And as a result of that picture and that imagery, we get that great uh, passage and that great verse where it says, immediately after he becomes great and I become a lesser. He must increase and I must decrease. He's the bridegroom. Paul carries on this illustration in uh, 2 Corinthians 11 too. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband. Talking to the church at Corinth. That I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve Eve, by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul is so jealous, if you read that passage, Paul is jealous because immediately after he's afraid they're going to be deceived and go after some other gospel. Um, go after some other god he's worried that there's a a different spirit that they're going to be taken over just like eve was um, by the serpent in the beginning that that in their immaturity they're going to run after some other god essentially saying he's afraid that they're going to take another god and commit spiritual adultery and paul is taking it upon himself as an elder as a as an apostle as a man who who loves the church at corinth to stand in the gap and says i will not like I cannot, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to stand in the gap um, so that you do not follow after. If, if God is with me and helps me, um, um, then, then, then I'm going to do my best to keep the church of Christ at Corinth a chaste virgin, pure and holy. Like that's my job, is what he says. Of which will culminate in Revelation 19 and 7 and 21 too, where it says, let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the white, fine linen, the garments, is the righteous acts of the saints. And in two, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be them and be their God. Then you come to Ephesians chapter 5 and you see probably this most uh, impregnated um, portion of Scripture speaking of the relationship that Christ has, God has with his church. Christ being the husbandman or the bridegroom and the church being um, his bride. Verse number 25, you say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for her. And then you see three purpose statements. That's really the emphasis of the passage today. Um, You see, and we don't want to we don't want to undermine this and we don't want to just slide over this, but I think we've done this in previous days, and I would encourage you to focus in on and think on what Christ accomplished in that love towards his bride. Right? For just a moment, think of what Christ had to do and where he had to go and what he had to become to accomplish this, right? That Christ loved the church. Men, love your wives. like Christ loved the church. How? I mean, that he gave himself for her. That he entered into human flesh. He became what he was not, and he became what you are, so that you might be what you're not and what he is. That, that the divine nature is imparted to you. Why? Because Ephesians 5 and verse number 2 says that you are to walk in love as Christ also have loved us and gave himself for us for an, as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. That He is the propitiation, 1 John 2, two, for our sins and not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. That, 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 that Jesus Christ entered in, offered Himself, and it was sweet-smelling in the nostrils of God um, to appease the wrath of God on our behalf. He enters into the world. He becomes us. Why? Because the just penalty of sin is death. Thus, death is culminated upon the cross and by faith and repentance uh, men come to him and are appropriate and receive that eternal life that Jesus Christ earned not only for himself but on our behalf and it's bestowed upon all of you that's the nature of the love of Christ men like in application I'm not going there uh, in depth but that's the way you're to love your wives that's the point of the passage but even more than that it's it's to be born out of the love that Christ has shown to us so unless Um, You have experienced the love that Christ has extended to you in dying for you. You can never extend that love to your wives. You cannot give what you do not have and you cannot extend what you do not know. So today is the day of salvation for those who do not know. I beg you to to, to look to Christ and live. That's the nature of it. But there's a purpose behind it, right? Specifically, um, if you were to look at verse 26-27 you would see, in the New King James anyway, and you may have a different translation, so it may be uh, slightly different, um, but he did this, that, that, and that. In verse number 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Number two, that, in verse 27, that he might present to her himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that, or so that, she would be holy and without blemish. There's your three purposes, right? Why did Christ die? Why did he come? So that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself at the end of the age um, as a glorious church, not having a spot or a wrinkle, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And that's what he's to do. Number one, the first of that is that you see sanctification commenced. Jesus dies for the church for his bride, with an undescribable, purposeful, intentional, sacrificial love, so that he may sanctify her, so that so you see sanctification commenced, or that he might make her holy, is what your translation may say. So he may sanctify her how by regeneration. When we think about sanctification, we often think about sanctification as a process, and maybe that's what's going on in your mind right now. I don't think that that is actually what this text is talking about. And when we think about sanctification, we think about putting sin off and putting Christ on, and we think about that progressive um, relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as He makes us more like Himself um, until that great day when He'll finally sanctify us and glorify us. But I think that what He's saying here is He's speaking about the initial part of sanctification. Did you know that you have been sanctified positionally in Christ and set apart? And that's why you can be you are seen today by Him in the heavenly places and for Him for all of life. That, that, that theologians or Christians in the past have referred to this initial sanctification or setting apart at salvation for Christ. Not just speaking of holiness or purity, but a setting apart, a making right, a purification in the beginning um, in which will be the basis of all the sanctification that happens afterwards. And I think that that's exactly what... Um, uh, Paul is talking about here. You'll see it in other places in Paul's writings. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Um, you, you read these words, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sophanes, our brother. The church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who are in every place, call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. And when we use the word sanctified, we often think of pure and holy, and that is right. But I'm gonna ask you today, why are you pure and holy? You know? Because and then, and then I ask this question. <laughs> Paul's writing to Corinth. Do you know of a more godless church than at Corinth? But he still calls them the church, right? <clears throat> that he's going to write to them all the thing about numerous things of grievous sin. He's not writing to them saying that you are a holy church in practice right now, but you are a holy church in the sense that you were born in Christ, set apart for his namesake. That's the idea. You read something similar in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse number 11, probably a passage that you're very familiar with, as he goes through a catalog of sins, one which is um, homosexuality, which is often where people go to battle that that, that error. Um, He says, uh, verse 10 nor thieves, nor covenants, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God, but you, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There is something that happened in your life that is past tense and sandwiched in between justification, which we know happened at salvation, and washing, which we know happened at salvation. Oftentimes people pull this out and they say it's a sanctification process. It's ongoing now and it is. But here I think he's talking about salvation in the sense that they were sanctified and set apart for Him initially. That that's the um, ideal of salvation the tenor of the um, idea. Um, and I bring that out because it's similar in a sense of marriage, right? Um, there, there, there is some who believe that this is an allusion to the bridal bath and Jewish ceremonies. That there would be a time in which they would both be cleansed prior to the coming together um, at the wedding. And that there would be a washing that would happen and a cleansing that would happen that would prepare them for the wedding and for the relationship. Um, and then that, that at the betrothal and at the, 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 the consummation, they would, be, um, they would enter into a new relationship. And I, I believe that what he's saying here is that he is saying that, that maybe I can illustrate it that way, that it's similar when you get married, which, in which roles and responsibilities change because relationship changes. There's a sense in which you are his and she is yours in a way that you are with no other man and no other woman, right? You're set apart for Him. Now, when my wife and I came together and we made the marriage covenant, we come to the realization among both of us that it changed every relationship with all of other creation. That there is a relationship that I have with other men and there is a relationship that I have with other women, but it is not like the relationship that I have with my wife. And the same for her. She was set apart as mine and I was set apart as hers and we entered into this union and we became one flesh and the privileges and the benefits of that um, have continued on since then. And that's the nature of exactly, I think, what he's talking about in initial sanctification or setting apart. To help us understand that, we might draw from the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament service in the nation, the temple, um, there were many things that were sanctified or made holy, right? Objects of creation. Before something could be used in the service of God, it had to be sanctified and set apart. For example, a pot, a pan, a piece of furniture, gold, silver, a lamb, you name it. Before it was utilized in the service and the worship of God, it had to be sanctified. Sure, it would once again get dirty. It would once again be covered with blood. It would once again be covered in the the temple sacrifice and service that would abolish and uh, that that would atone for um, the sins of the nation and would cover those up. Um... But it was initially sanctified. you know, And made it different than all other things even like it. It made it holy in that sense. There was millions of pounds of gold in the earth. But it was not to be used in the service of God. And actually to do that would have incurred the wrath of God in the temple. But also this gold, silver, and wood that was set apart. It was uniquely blessed for the service of God in this service alone. It was not to exit the temple. It was not to be used for common use is the language of the um, Old Testament. That it was ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, so things were not entering in unless they were sanctified. And things once sanctified were never to exit the temple or be used for common use outside of the service of God. It was no longer common. Listen, I know that God's the creator of all the world and he's the, and he's the God of all people in some form or fashion and we're all made of the same stuff biologically and we're all made in the image of God. But when God saves a man and when God saves a woman and God saves a church and he, sets a, and he saves a child and He sets them apart, He sets them apart for His service and His service alone. He washes them for that purpose. He cleanses them for that reason. They enter into the bride of Christ with benefits and privileges for the purpose of being set apart for Him. Every single thing from that moment on, you know, in 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 technically is to be utilized for the glory of God. He is his. She is his. If your little one comes to Christ, or you come to Christ, or a friend comes to Christ, you know, entering into that relationship and becoming part of the bride of Christ universally and locally um, indicates that you are now different than what you were. And you are set apart for temple use, for sacred use, for the service of God. The service of God. You know, and I know that it's controversial in most contexts, and hopefully not here, uh, but maybe with some of you, to talk about men and women and their distinctions today. Even among Christians, you know. But in the beginning, and even here now, the wife is to aid the husband. That's the idea. You know, that, and that can look a lot of different, uh, different in a lot of ways in the home. And, and it'll look different among homes and among families. But, but it definitely appear, it's definitely a biblical concept. Particularly because that's the argument that Paul makes. Husbands, wives do this. Why, Paul? Because that's a picture of Christ and his church. Husbands look to the model of Christ and his church and the model of marriage after that. Eve was made to aid Adam in the mission that God gives him. She's not to be a slave to him. She's not to help him in all of his wacky ideas and schemes necessarily to lose all of their state. But as he takes God's cue and gives him mission, she is given to him to accomplish, to help him, aid him, accomplish that because he can't do it alone. Jesus Christ enters into the world. And some debate whether he was married in this life or not. Of course, I think he wasn't. But that doesn't mean he was never married or that he won't. His bride is the church. She was created to aid Him in carrying out His purposes in the world. She has come under His authority of which all authority was given to Him on heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore. God has determined to accomplish His mission and purpose by setting apart and entering in relationship with His bride. That at the time of salvation, He sets you and me and He sets this local church apart for that purpose and for that purpose alone. And when we understand who we are and that we are the bride of Christ, it should fine tune our focus as individuals as well as as a church. Corporately speaking, we are His and His alone. And what that means, and that's what Jesus says in Matthew 16, the first time the church, church, term church is used, assembly, congregation, called out ones, he says that, 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 that it is my church. And it's, upon, and, and, and it's my church in which the gates of hell will not prevail. That Jesus takes ownership of His church. That she is His bride. She was born out of His side. And her purpose is to be His purpose. That our activity is to be activity that is born out of His desires. That we are to come under His head and His authority and we are to do the things that He desires for us to do. Um, period. Period. So every activity that we engage in at Christ's Bible Church is to be rooted and grounded in the purposes of God and Christ. That's it. No more. How does He do that? He does that by the cleansing of the, washing water, uh, cleansing of the water by the washing of the Word. This is how He sets us apart. This is what the text says in Ephesians. That the way that He sets us apart is through the cleansing of the washing of the water by the Word. Uh, I think that this is a, a reference to salvation and regeneration. You read that in Titus 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. John fifteen three, you are clean through the Word spoken to you. As the Gospel goes forth, it is the power of God unto salvation. It implodes and explodes in the heart of a man. The love of God is shed abroad. He enters into the betrothal period. He is, he is bought by Christ. The dowry has been paid for this marriage and this relationship and He, in a sense, is now in covenant with her. And she is to come alongside him. And that happens through the preaching of the gospel and the washing of the word. If you are in Christ, you have been cleansed and you have a cleansed life. And if you don't, um, that's the idea you're diametrically opposed to what means to be or to become Christ. Brian, if we as a church, if you as an individual is walking um, in a totally different direction in opposition to the purposes of Christ, um, it brings into question your uh, marriage relationship. If nothing else, it, it, it raises questions of spiritual adultery. Um, that we, when we enter into relationship with him, he is now, we are, we are to, to, to serve and honor him with, with simplicity and godly sincerity. You know, this may sound too much and this may sound over the top. But First 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that you're to glorify God in all things, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, you are to do for the glory of God. You are created for Him, by Him, to Him for the glory of His Son. And if there's anything missing in the church as a whole, let me just say this, maybe in our church, it is a sense of holiness and a set-apartness of And again, while I mean purity, I mean more than purity. I mean purpose. I mean, there are many things that we are doing and there are many things that we could do. And maybe there's people here today struggling with their lives because they don't see the uniqueness of the identity, of their identity in Christ such that with an an immeasurable and incalculable love for the bridegroom, that it's birthed in them a willingness and a joy to gratefully say, I will follow him wherever he goes. You know, people look at me and my wife and people probably look at your marriage and they think, you know, and they look at your wife and they think, man, she has so much potential to do so many greater things. And she just sits at home, you know, with an apron behind a sink and all that. They have no clue what my wife is or what my wife does, you know. They have no clue in the essential nature Um, of everything that I am and everything that this has been blessing to this church they have no clue um, as to the aid and the help and the fact that if I did not have her this would not be possible you know that she has chosen as her uh, responsibility her duty and her great privilege to come alongside me and to help me in any and every capacity and some people look at that like slavery and bondage and she'll tell you day in and day out that it's freedom in Christ to come alongside and help you know because it's born out of a love that I have for her. You see, that's the nature of Christ and His church, right? You say, man, you require a lot of, a, of, of the bride. Um, maybe so. Maybe so. But it's born out of the sacrifice of a husband. It's born out of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who enters into the world and with every right and every authority and every privilege, He lays it down. And I say, it, it, when you look at it and lay it next to that and lay it open and lay it bare, could you ever ask too much from the, of the church? You know, Could you ever ask too much of a bride in whom um, a, a, a husband is willing day in and day out to live for and to die for and to give everything for that she could be sustained and nourished and cherished as the greatest object of His affection? Is there anything? That's, a, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about slavery and we're not talking about bondage. We're talking about Jesus Christ who's extended a love immeasurable and incalculable and out of this world for us that He's willing to give everything and anything and all of Himself to, 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 to give you life. You know, men, that's the love that you're to show your wives. That's the love when born out of godliness, they will look at you and they'll say, I will follow him wherever he goes if God gives me time and ability. And that's what the church should echo today to the world and to each other and to one another. That this man who is into who enters in and becomes like us and as us in every part and is willing to lay down that we have an, a a simplicity a singleness of heart and affection for him and for him alone. So whatever the Bible dictates, whatever Christ's purposes are, then we will cling to those and to cling to those alone because that's the only worthy endeavor. That we as a church come together as a local body and we um, resolve in our own hearts and in our activities. That if an activity does not contribute to that purpose then we are just distracting ourselves and deceiving ourselves and that we're doing things and distracting ourselves from the real purpose. That's what a church is. And that's what a church does. That, that sanctification is not only commenced in the washing of the water by the word and regeneration and the giving of life but it's consummated. It's consummated. In verse number 27, that he might present to her himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Why did he do that? Because there's a coming a day in Revelation 19 and 20 pictures and illustrates this day in which the wedding will be finally and fully consummated and completed. And um, Christ will finally receive the reward of his sufferings in a way that is perfect and complete. He will present to her a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That what He did in salvation initially points to what He will finally and fully do on that day. And on that day, well, you think it's beauty now. And you, 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 know, you bow and hunt humility and joy in what Christ has accomplished in extending grace to us in a way that is immeasurable. Just wait till that day. Like that's what He's saying. That what I have began a good work in you and I will complete it until the day of Christ. And on that day, there will be a great, wondrous communion day. But as I said last week, what do we do until that time? What about the intermediate period? What about the time in between? What is the bride to do? She is to prepare. So you see not only sanctification commenced and consummated, but sanctification continued. So where's that at in the text? It's in verse 28 and 29. Husbands, you're to love your own wives as you love your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Just as the Lord does the church. He will secure the final glorious and great day. How? By continually caring for, loving, cherishing, nourishing, and continually sanctifying and setting apart His bride in an environment of holiness, but also tender love, care, and patience. So what does that look like? It looks like a continual life in the Word and a life in the church and a life in the Spirit where you come to the knowledge of the truth and you put off and you put on, Paul says. You walk and you die and you live, as Paul says. Jesus Christ invades and pervades the soul with the truth and you appropriate it by faith and you think, man, God doesn't desire that, He desires this. Why should I do that, Paul? Because that's the reason He saved you. Because that's the reason He died for you. That salvation not only purchased and redeemed out of this world your, uh, your eternal salvation, but that your eternal salvation is secure because the Spirit now indwells you and comes alongside you and keeps you and preserves you and perseveres you. How? By urging you and imploring you and begging you and rebuking you to abandon and die to self and to cling to Him. It preaches you to the Gospel not only on the day of salvation that you are to bend the knee and bow and repent but all throughout your life this should be your character and nature. That every single day should be wrought in the Word of God by the Spirit of God and the putting off and putting on of the flesh. That's how He preserves you. That's how He keeps you. That's how he, He nourishes you. That's how He cherishes you as a husband should his wife. He not only enters in and marries that one day and then runs off and lives the rest of his life doing um, whatever he desires in a foreign field. But the husband to the wife commits not only um, his inheritance, but day-to-day living with his wife. This is not only true of the individual, though. This is true of the church. And that's one thing I really want to emphasize. I'd encourage you to read the post-Gospels, after the Gospels. Read the book of Acts. Read the epistles. You know what you find there? You find a church that's working out its own salvation and that God is working in them the will and the do of His good pleasure. You find congregations as local and local bodies as they come together struggling through in, uh, the passing of the Old Covenant and the inauguration of the New. Um, that Christ's bride is not individual Christians inherently. But Christ's bride is local congregations who gather themselves together for the purposes of Christ. And what do you read in the New Testament? Everybody wants a perfect church. Um, everybody wants all the things that they desire in the church. You know? Everybody wants it to be low-key and no problems and this and that. Um, find that in the world. But not only try to find that in the world, um, you'll frustrate yourself, but try to find that in God's Word. You know what you find in the book of Acts? You find a church, man, that's just loving one another day in and day out in the sanctification process. They've been set apart as, the, as a beautiful bride to illustrate to the world his character and nature. And oftentimes that, that, that looks like working through issues. And God exemplifies himself in grace and mercy and patience and love and care and holiness and discipline and a number of other things. You find them in Acts working through issues like a lack of care for Greek widows. You find them working through issues of theft in the church and church discipline. You find them working through issues like persecution and opposition. You find them working through issues like whether or not to defy authorities over them because of the overreach of power and governing bodies. You find them working through issues of church leadership. You find them working through issues of disciples abandoning them on the field and whether or not they're even saved and they should receive them again, which eventually leads to a split in the brethren, Paul, of all people. You find them working through church membership and whether or not to receive a murderer into the family of God um, based upon his profession of faith because all that he was and all that he did previously. You find them working through issues of evangelism and and who they should evangelize and who they shouldn't. I mean, should we include, include the Gentiles or not? Peter argues no at one point and God corrects him. We find them working through doctrinal and practical issues concerning salvation and what's necessary. Circumcision works of the law. We find them struggling with the nature of the gospel at times. So they gather together as churches and they work through those issues. And we could go on and on and on and on. And then you come to the epistles and what do you have? You have in large part rebuke, correction, instruction, mixed with and mingled with praise, encouragement, edification, But honestly, you have false teachers in the church. You have unhealthy doctrine being taught. You have divisions among the brethren and sin of all sorts sexual immorality, unforgiveness, brothers taking each other to court, misuse and abuse of spiritual gifts, lack of love, churches without elders and deacons. Like, this is the church. The church is on a process of sanctification, you know? The church is, when you come to a church, everybody wants a church that is all ironed out and it's beautiful and it's perfect and it's spotless and like that. But but that's actually the point. You're to come to a church because you're not. And I am to come to a church because I'm not. You know? You look at the book of Acts and you look at the epistles and atheists and agnostics look and they say it's not much of a church at all. Doesn't that concern you? Of course it concerns me when those things are running rampant in the church. But the thing that concerns me more our church is not being sanctified because they never were sanctified and set apart. It concerns me when we don't see the mortification of sin and the putting on of Christ and the killing of, of self and the, and the appropriation of Christ by faith through His word and His likeness. The church in Acts comforts me. It comforts me so. They had problems. They had issues. They had sin. They had doctrinal area, but guess what? They worked through it. And God met them as they met together. You know, that's what you don't see a lot of times in the New Testament, like you see in the church today. You know what you see in the church today? You know, individual testimonies and isolated personal stories. The New Testament is birthed and born, and what you see all throughout it is the story, not of individuals, but the story of the church. You see how they interact. You see how they relate to one another. Sure, you see some people that come to the forefront like Paul and Peter and others, but, but but predominantly, it's not their story. It's Christ's story as it plays out within the congregation and within the church. That Christ sets them apart and sanctifies them and continually nourishes and cares for them. And one of the great means that He uses to accomplish that is this. It's this. It's this. That's the nature of the church. This is not legalism. I abhor legalism. This is purity born out of an all-consuming love for the husbandman, for the bridegroom. And until you understand that, the Christian life and what we do here on Sunday morning will be slavery and bondage to you. It's rooted in the Old Testament. It's developed in the New Testament. And it is applied now. Now. Um, that this is the time of preparation. You know, it, it, I encourage you to go home and study Jewish weddings. You probably Google it and find a whole host of information. But what you find is you find that Jewish weddings were a long procession. It began with a betrothal that often lasted a year or more. It was often arranged, and at that time, the couple were legally bound in marriage. You know, only two things could break the betrothal, death and divorce. They hadn't consummated the marriage yet, but in the betrothal, um, they had covenanted together and bound to their communities. And then there was the interval. The bridegroom would often use that time to provide the dowry um, to pay for the bride to the father. They would use it to prepare for the wedding feast. And then you have the procession and the preparation. And during this time, the bride adorns herself. You have the bridal baths. You have the groom accompanied by his friends. You have the singing and the bearing of torches arriving at the home of the bride, even sometimes at night, and receiving the bride to be taken to the banquet for the place of the marriage ceremony. This is what Paul is saying in first or Second Corinthians that we read earlier. He's saying that the church has betrothed the Christ. He paid the dowry from heaven. He came and sought her with the angels singing, even in the midst of the night. Um, And He bought her with His own blood and now it's a time to prepare for that day. Church, say, why did Christ buy us? Why did Christ sanctify us? Why did He set us apart? Why did He betroth Himself to us so that we would prepare for that great and grand day? That we are living now in the time of Christ's ascension and his return, betrothed to him, as good as married, yet not um, walked into all of the privileges and benefits that one day we will. One day we will. We've made a lot of application to this, but finally, what could we say? What could we say? Keep this truth before your eyes. I think of Christ's love for his bride. I think of the purity, the holiness, the majesty, the glory, the power, the infinite wisdom of God in Christ through His Spirit. And I think of how we are supposed to be more like Him. You know, and some days that seems impossible. And then I'm reminded that part of that immeasurable glory that He purchased and rests in Him is that He enables us to be like Him when we can. Like, that's, amen, right? Glory to God. And I'm convicted that I'm not in so many areas. And um, as I reflect upon Him, this I think. I am to be like Him, and I am to not only be like Him in all in, in other areas, but I am to be like Him in this area. I am to love His bride. I am to love His bride. You say, today we need to be more Christ-like. What is more Christ-like than loving the bride? You know? Being pleased in the Son. I love God the Father just pouring out His pleasure on the Son at baptism. I think, man, we need to be more like that. Just take pleasure in the Son, but... As the Son takes pleasure in the Bride, I beg you this morning and implore you that if you want to be like Christ, love His Bride. Spend your life loving His Bride. Spend your life being spent for His Bride. End your life living for His Bride. And in essence, you live for Him. Christ's purchase, not only that, Christ's uh, purpose for purchasing His church is the only purpose for which we should strive for in this church. He died for it. He should receive it. Not only it, but that for which he died to accomplish. This was Christ's purpose in Ephesians 5. This was Paul's purpose in Colossians one twenty eight. He says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor striving according to this working which works in me mightily. Paul, why do you do what you do? I do it, I I, I invest in the church because it is incumbent upon me that one day I present to him the bride that he died for. This is the purpose of the body. and We see that in Ephesians 4 as he gives gifts to the church. Why? For that very purpose to be matured and to be complete in Christ and to come together in unity. That the church is born and the church is the means by which he accomplishes that that it is our endeavor to spend the rest of our lives preparing the bride. It's particularly mine as an elder and a pastor in a local church, but it's yours as well. We are to be active in the process of maturing the body. You and I are instruments in the plan of God to be used to give Christ what He deserves on that great day. To give Him what He died for. Not only a people, but a holy people, a blameless people, a spotless bride. So we must ask ourselves individually, Do we love the church? If so, and Christ were to reveal himself today at that second coming, let's ask you a simple question. What do you have to show that? What would you show him? Think about it. You know, I ask myself that question all the time. As a pastor, as a brother, as a friend, what are we? We are Christ's bride. We are the great object of his affection. He loves us so much that he gave. He says, if you're a believer that loves, then dwells in you. Then I ask just a simple question and I ask myself all the time, then where is it? Why did he love? To sanctify the body. To make it more like Jesus. Now the question becomes even more fine-tuned because all the things that you just thought of, that you've contributed to in the church, I ask this question, for what reason? Because we can get lost in a lot of activity that is really meaningless or self-exalting and deceptive. We can be very activity-oriented, program-concerned, problem-consumed, and solution-oriented. But the question is, is what is the activity contributing to? What is the program accomplishing? What is the problem we're fixing? Is it even a problem we should be involved in at all? And is it a solution? Is the solution the sanctification of the bride? Is the sacrifice promoting the cause of Christ in this congregation making them more like Him? You know? And this last year brings all that into question for me. You know? All the things that we were doing. Sometimes we just do them to do them because other Baptist churches do them. You know? Sunday morning, Sunday school, Wednesday night, this, that. Oftentimes we raise a standard and those standards may be good and something to model after. But at the end of the day, we ask why? Why? Why are you here? You know, we treat church like it's a game. We treat it like it's, it's benign, that it doesn't even matter. Shut down for a week or two. Close the door for a month. Imagine in Daniel, they tell him not to pray for a week. Tell him, they tell him not to pray just for a month. We'll take the statue down afterwards. The mandate will go by. Can you imagine what runs through Daniel's heart? Tell me not to pray. <laughs> then by what means will he keep me? Oh Lord, in the face of Nebuchadnezzar, don't pray. It sounds benign for a short period of time. It sounds benign. It sounds little. It sounds like not much. It sounds like a liberty that I can give up. But it's the very means by which you keep me, Lord. Then how will you keep me? Don't pray. You might as well lay down the sword. You might, you might as well lay down my sword while 20,000 soldiers charge my home. This is the means by which you have governed and dictated and purchased on my behalf that I can, that I can charge in and, and come boldly into the throne room of grace. You know, imagine if somebody asked us not to pray, what would run through our minds? What would do? And then they ask us to forsake the bride, you say. The object of Christ's affection, the means by which the people are made more like Himself, the woman to whom the apostles were pastors and elders are placed in charge to gather, to guard, and to guide, that they may present to Him on that great, day, on that great day, every man mature in Christ as a chaste virgin in the sight of God. You might as well remove my heart from my chest because this is the very reason we now exist. I am wrapped up in the bride because Christ is wrapped up in me, and He's wrapped up in His bride. You know. Therefore, we do not take it lightly when people come and they say, "You cannot meet." This is the very reason for which He died. This is no game. Today, we're toying around with it, minimizing the value of the church, all while the world and the devil, this very age, um, this very day, wage war against Christ's Bride and would love nothing more than to have her head on a platter alongside John the Baptist. And the question is: Is what will you do to rescue her? What will we be willing to give to sacrifice to save her? Some people come and go and they treat church like it's entertainment or it's an event and this and that. It's very self-exalting, you know. They come and they go uh, to, to, to serve themselves. And it breaks my heart. They get offended and they leave and they say, you know, essentially they're not worth it. I understand there's reasons to come and I understand there's reasons to go. But that's foreign to the New Testament, you know? They have a deluded sense of what the church is and what it's supposed to be. That that's actually why we're here. Because we are a mess and we are going to offend and we are going to do this and we are going to do that. Why? Because as individuals and as a church, we're on a process of sanctification, and the love of God says nourish and cherish it, stay with it. That's why you need to be there. Don't run. Don't run. Don't run. God gives us some people that will act. God, may God give us some people and I think they're here that will agonize over the sacrifice for Christ and sacrifice for Christ's bride um, as they follow in His stead. And they follow in His example. I get it, it gets hard. And I get it, it gets difficult. I get it, there are days that are discouraging, dark and dismal. You labor and you wonder, some days, what's the point? And you say, she doesn't love me. The bride doesn't love me. And he says, I know. Like in Hosea. Who God tells to marry a harlot wife of a wife. She doesn't love man. God says, I know. Then you say, but she doesn't even want to be loved. And God says, I know. But God in his faithfulness has kept covenants, Even in the midst of her harlotry, so do we. And that's actually that love that is born and displayed and visually made um, is actually what changes the lives of people. That's what they need to see. That's one of the impossibilities of a sustained online church. It's like saying you can have a long-distance marriage. You know? Imagine at the beginning of this, and listen, we shut down, and I think there was right to. You know, there there's a lot of questions and things of that nature. It was temporary, and I, I don't judge a man for what he decides to do. I know how hard of a decision it was for me to make Um, to to close for a month man if you've got together and with your elders and your staff and your um, church man just uh, and you've determined that this is the nature and what needs to happen then to god be the glory if you're doing it for his reason for that purpose Um, but even at that if you don't meet you have to find different ways to fulfill this purpose you know in the beginning i was thinking man i need to go to people's houses i need to carry on why because i have to present every man mature in grace you know um, I can't do that over Facebook. I can't do that here and there. I, I need to pray with people. And uh, working in the hospital made it hard because I was like, I'll bring the enemy in with me because I didn't know what it was at the beginning. Maybe it would kill them, you know? Maybe it was dangerous, man, and it just, it, 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 it destroyed my heart on many days. Like, I don't know. Like, I need to get to them. Imagine being separated from a father or from a, 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 imagine being separated from a child. You know, you go outside. They've been playing at the park. And like, you look out, 10 seconds. You know, kids, they're gone, you know? And you're like, it's just, I don't know like I need them they need me like God's given me to protect them and like I, I can't do that that far away I can't do that while they're off at, at school I can't do that you know I quit a job one time that was distant you know because like I was there in a hotel room in the middle of the night and I'm like if something happens like I, I, I need to be there God's given me like I'll be responsible like they need me I, uh, not, not that I'm their savior I get that but, the, but God has commissioned me give me the responsibility like I got like I, I turned around and went home immediately you know and I don't do that lightly um, but it was getting in the way of the responsibility that God's given me, you know. And I think about why Christ saved us, and I think about the purpose that he's given us, and I think about you, and I think about your beauty, and I think about the holiness, and, the, and what we're to do in the world. And I think, man, like how do churches carry on sustain like that? You know, not meeting, not gathering, it's the very means. It's like ripping a heart out of a chest. It's like saying, I can't pray. It's like saying, don't read your Bible. This is his bride. You know? And I'm going to stand before Him one day and you're going to stand before Him one day. And we need to be faithful to the beauty and the simplicity of the Gospel. You know, we are Christ's mouth. It's not only individuals, but also collectively. Um, we are a church. We are not just Christians. We are a church. And we are to go out into the world as individuals, but also as a congregation, as a church, Why? Because he says, I have sheep and they are not of this fold. And how is he going to bring them in? Well, he's a bit by the simplicity of the gospel as the church goes forth and out into the world, not only individually, but collectively and bear the very nature and character of Christ that the gospel has accomplished in their hearts. And it's a time to prepare for that great day by preparing now, being holy now, carrying out his purpose now. So know that in the coming days, if they ask us not to meet, Chances are we will meet. Unless there's a great reason like a fire on the other side of the building and there's impending doom, we will meet. We must prepare. I love Johnny Erickson Tata. Um, She sings many songs. I came across this the other day as she was relating. If you don't know her, she's a quadriplegic at the age of 17. Um, um, Had an accident and just paralyzed from the waist down. Just serving and honoring Christ today, man. I mean, even in the midst of it. But she writes these words. She says, think of the transforming, quote, think of the transforming relevance of this picture being the bride of Christ to a 17-year-old girl, cute as could be, horse rider, great swimmer, great future, plenty of dates, plenty of opportunities, everything to look forward to in a moment. She's a quadriplegic. In a moment, she can't even wipe her own nose. In a moment, she'll go nowhere. What does she have to look forward to? He says, "Though I spend my mortal lifetime in this chair, I refuse to waste it in despair. And though others may receive gifts of healing, I believe that He has given me a gift beyond compare. For heaven is nearer to me, at the, and at times it's all I can see. Sweet music I can hear coming down to my ear, and I know that it's playing for me. For I am Christ's savior's, I am Christ the savior's own bride, and redeemed. I shall stand by His side. He will say, Shall we dance?'" And our endless romance will be worth all the tears that I have cried. Could it be that when she wakes up every morning, she's counting down the days to the banquet, all the while saying, I've got to be ready. And when she says that, someone asks, ready for what? Ready for him. That changes Sunday mornings, doesn't it? It transforms what it means to be a church. All that God is doing and all that God is saying in His Word is to bring us to the place where we will appear as that beautifully dressed, spotless bride and everything else falls into place. And we're on the countdown. Right? Like a bride. Ask any bride. If I know anything about brides, I know this. When's the wedding? And they'll be like, yeah, two months, 14 days, three hours, 22 minutes and 30 seconds, 29, 28. That's the way brides think. Yeah, that I know of. They know what it means on that day. They know that they've got to get things ready. They know that they've got to have everything in place. They know that the dress has to be pristine. They know they have to get their hair fixed. They know that makeup's got to be perfect. They're not. They're they're willing to spend the cost. You know. They know that the venue has to be appropriate. They know that all these things need to be in place. Do you? Do you? You are the bride, and it is by means of the church that we prepare for him. Are you counting down the days? Are you longing for what it means to be with Him? If so, then we should prepare. Let's pray. God, we love and thank You and praise You for a glorious day. God, we thank You for Your love for us and all that Christ is and all that Christ does. Father, we thank You for what we are by virtue of Him. Father, And we just pray that You'll give us a glimpse of that day. That it will provoke us, Father, to prepare, to get ready, to count down. I know we'll never know the day or the hour, so we need to be ready today. God, I love you, bride. I love you. You're precious. She's precious. God, may you help us, enable us to know how best we can serve her, how best we can lay our life down for her. How best, Father, we can run after her. How best we can protect her. God, give us a godly jealousy over her so that we can say to the Apostle Paul, as we stand outside the doors, Father, and wave our swords, that we'll let no false teacher, no false gospel, no other God, Father, enter in. Father, in the coming days, would you give us wisdom and discernment and how to operate and what to do, Father? In the midst of opposition and persecution, I don't know what that has to bring. Father, um, and I don't want to displease you um, I really don't so I need you Father I need you to, to teach us to lead us, to be with us Father to know when to stand and when not to know what to fight for and to know when not Father to know what right we can uh, lay down and what right we must take up Father, there were certain things about Christ that he could not give in his character and nature but then there were things that he was willing Father, would you teach us what, we're, uh, what we should and should not Father is that I don't think the church is one of us. I don't think the gathering is one of those, Father, unless there is just appropriate, imminent reason and danger, Lord. And if that's wrong, change my mind, please. Take me to the Word of God, and uh, do that, Father. Um, your bride is too precious, and too wonderful, and too glorious to um, to trample with. And to, uh, Lord, we need you in the coming days. Would you help our church just to be that, Father, that bride who adorns herself and is preparing for that great day, Father, by making us more like your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.